before we begin the episode, I want to point out two things. First, this is about Alfred Hitchcock's film Vertigo, and we spoil it almost immediately. So if you care about that, go watch the film before you listen to any of this. Second, part two of this discussion will not be appearing on the Partially Examined Life public feed. Instead, it will be available on our website or on our Patreon site for as little as $1. So you may want to just stop listening now and go get that full, unbroken, ad-free version. Or stick around to the end of the episode. I'll give more details on how to get part two, why we're doing this, etc. Thanks for listening. You're listening to The Partially Examined Life, a podcast by some guys who were at some point set on doing philosophy for a living, but then thought better of it. Our question for episode 169 is something like, is there such a thing as a sexual relationship? We watched Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 film Vertigo and read several articles analyzing it from a psychoanalytic and feminist bent. This is Wes Allone, or as my friends like to call me, Available Allone, in Cambridge, Massachusetts. This is Mark Linsenmeyer, ever suspended over the abyss of my own narcissism in Madison, Wisconsin. This is Seth Paskin in Austin, Texas. This is Dylan Casey, tumbling onto the terracotta in Middleton, Wisconsin. (laughs) I like that. Well, Wes, I can answer your question. No, there's no such thing as a sexual relationship for people who spend a lot of time analyzing vertigo. (laughs) (laughs) But that's not what you meant. Tell us what you mean by your question, Wes. (laughs) What do I mean by the question? So I'm going to give a little intro. It's not going to involve a plot summary. If you're listening to this, you should just go turn this off, pause it, go watch the movie, and then come back. We don't want to give a quick plot summary once you're done? You know, I'll just give a quick spoiler. Judy is Madeline. Madeline is Judy. So uh, (laughs) sorry to break the news. (laughs) You shouldn't be listening to podcasts on Vertigo until you've seen the film. We're all going to do opening statements so we can remind people of the plot. Wes doesn't have to. You've probably heard of Vertigo, cited as one of the great films of all time. Sight and Sound magazine voted it as the greatest film ever made. It's always been in the top 100 for the American Film Institute. So that, despite the fact that initially it didn't do well either with audiences or with critics, it's just a film that over time... It became a favorite with directors and critics and film buffs. And then eventually it became important to academic criticism, especially psychoanalytic and feminist criticism. So one of the essays we read tonight is a 1975 paper by feminist critic Laura Mulvey. Very offsided. It's probably cited by every other paper we read on Vertigo for this episode. And it's called Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. So the basic idea is that Vertigo has a lot of fascinating things to say, if you're willing to generously interpret it, about sexual relationships between men and women, and then by analogy, the relationship between films and their audiences. And a lot of that criticism revolves around concepts that really have entered the popular political lexicon, like objectification and male gaze. If you follow politics a lot, you've heard those terms quite a bit, and that's the kind of thing that comes up in these essays. And so that's why I use this question, is there such a thing as a sexual relationship? It's an allusion to a famous assertion by Lacan that there is no such thing as a sexual relationship. And what he basically means by that is that when we enjoy other human beings sexually, we're, as Kant would put it, using them as a means to an end. We're necessarily objectifying them and really fetishizing some part of them or some quality of them rather than relating to the person themselves. So the subject, if you go back to our existentialist episodes, the subject is something different from 
character. The existence is different from essence. And when we relate to people sexually, we're relating to character qualities. You may think if you someone likes you for your personality, that's more significant than them liking you for your body, one being shallow and one not. But in a way, it's all shallow under this interpretation. None of it touches the subject as sort of a end in itself, as a subjectivity, someone who has experiences. Why does vertigo attract all of this sort of commentary? Because it's really is a case study of a fetishization by a man of a woman. Scotty's whole relationship to Madeline and then to Judy and the way he tries to remake her into Madeline. That's sort of the attraction here. And then the question that a lot of these papers try and answer using psychoanalysis is why does that happen? Why is that sort of fetishization necessary? And how does vertigo tell us about that? And the overall idea is that there's something threatening to men about female sexuality, specifically about female desire and even female subjectivity as such. If you want to get at what the real cause of Scotty's vertigo is, nominally it's heights, but really it seems by the end of the film to have something to do with that. So tonight we'll just delve into some of the different explanations of the meaning of Scotty's vertigo and what he's doing with Madeline and Judy and what it says about male desire and relationships between men and women. This will hopefully stand in some contradistinction to Wes's opening <laughs> statement. What is interesting about, well, this movie is very bizarre. It's very fucked up. It plays on many of the tropes of sort of standard film noir. So you have the detective who, a defrocked man, who is a, sort of like the gumshoe or the detective that's played by Humphrey Bogart in some of the film noir films that knows enough, could have been or was in the police force and now is sort of for whatever reason out on the personal being a private detective because they couldn't make it in the force, usually because of some kind of trauma. In this case, it's Vertigo. In other films, it's something different. He's a cop on the edge. A cop, well, not a cop on the edge, a cop in recovery. Literally or, on the edge. Yeah. Go ahead. And there's usually a figure from the past who asks them to help out with some sort of this idea of, I want you to follow my wife and let me know what's going on. There's something weird happening. And where the private investigator does that without knowing any of the background, right? Because the position they're in puts them at some sort of a sense of dire straits where they don't do a certain amount of what makes them good at their job, which is maybe investigation has to be suspended in order for the plot to further. So at the beginning, in many respects, it's following a standard narrative, a Hollywood narrative of the way that these kinds of films work. But it quickly gets unusual, and then it very quickly veers from that script. So one of the things that's very jarring about it to me was that I think Hitchcock intentionally drew you in on a trope that was well-known, well-respected, and expected, and then very much veers from that path into this psychological examination that is highly irregular. And so it's kind of double jarring. It's not just that this is a very bizarre film with respect to what Wes was talking about, but it, it's not like a uh, David Cronenberg film. It's not like that. He uses a form that's familiar, but subverts it to make this point, which I can imagine for audiences that were coming in expecting to see something much more traditional was even more jarring. So there are many, many, many levels on which this is extremely disturbing. Sure. So I had seen the movie many years ago, but I confess that I had forgotten whole chunks of it. 
in particular, I had forgotten about the dream sequence in the middle, which it was like seeing it for the first time. I agree with a lot of the way Seth characterized my own experience of it is of seeing Hitchcock use tropes for a sort of detective film in which he sort of breaks bad and gets tied up into his own psychology and wrapped up in the case itself and becomes the case rather than solving the case. I also found myself thinking a lot about the relationship that Scotty has with himself and with Judy and Madeline and his own recovery or attempt to recover and his own demons going on. And to me, I saw a lot of that and a lot of it being acted out in what feels like his misogyny in the movie. I'm going to be interested to talk a lot more about the themes that Wes is bringing in in the psychoanalysis papers we read and the themes that he was talking about, because some of it I find myself going a long way with and other parts I just have questions about. So I'm looking forward to that part of the discussion. All right. Well, uh, for my opening statement, I wanted to just throw four points out there. The first one is that we're going, for the purposes of this conversation, as most of the interpreters that we read, we're going with the auteur theory. So we basically can say Hitchcock meant, even though a film is obviously a collaboration, we're kind of kind of ignore, for the most part, the other people that were involved. And that's pretty justified in the case of Hitchcock, because he was such a control freak. And even though this is based on a 1954 French novel, D'Entre les Morts, From Among the Dead, and then he didn't write the screenplay either. There were three different guys involved in writing the screenplay. However, Four, actually. Oh, okay. Apparently, one of the things I heard was that the screenplay people didn't actually read the book, that it was Hitchcock worked with the book himself and worked out his storyboarding more or less. I'm not sure exactly how far he got in the process, but did a lot of kind of pre-script work and then these screenplay writers were just you know people that he worked with to actually come up with the particular things that are said and flesh out but it's all him deciding what was going to be seen from moment to moment and what was going to be the next step in the story and it is interesting some of the differences between what he decided to do and the book and the differences in tone those are certainly worth remarking on but the focus of what we're talking about since none of us read the book is the movie itself. And I think that's okay. That's, we're just following the convention. As far as what philosophy to take out of this, it's something that I want to revisit here and there as we go. An obvious thing that jumps to mind is just the question, is vertigo, is there a, a decent way to ontologize that concept from this movie? To say it's not just that this guy had acrophobia and so in certain situations he would get dizzy and then the movie shows him getting more fucked up. And so that theme of vertigo goes throughout his experience. Is there something that we can apply from that concept to modern life or, you know, in the way that our favorite existentialists talk about dread and anxiety and disgust and things like that? Another live issue that I wanted to, us to consider here is whether the movie constitutes a romance that a lot of what we read focused on exactly how fucked up everything is and how Scotty is not really loving anybody besides himself, and it's entirely based on illusion. However, I was sort of convinced by one of the dissenting voices in the various things that we looked at that, no, maybe it actually this is a romantic film, even though it's a tragic one. 
So something to think about, and that's also very relevant to thinking about, is this picture of sexuality just a pathological case and we're looking at an exceptional instance of something that happened? Or can we generalize from this in the way Wes was saying to, yeah, actually, romance itself is pathological. So that would be a way to say both that this is fucked up, but it's also an actual traditional romance. It's just that it's sort of being more honest and not using cinematic conventions in presenting what a romance is. It's actually stating more or less the psychological truth or a psychological truth about romance. And then last thing, which we're mostly not going to talk about today, kind of by mutual agreement, is I was certainly in reading all the interpretations. One of the questions that is constantly on my mind is what constitutes a decent method of interpretation? Is there any a priori way to decide these kinds of interpretations are good, these kinds uniformly don't work. And I'm at least going on the assumption here for the purposes of this discussion that no, you actually just, you can't rule out whole sets of interpretations. You can't say, oh, I don't buy all that Marxist or all that psychoanalytic mumbo jumbo. Like, no, just look at the individual interpretation and decide whether it's convincing to you. And if you don't think so, then point out something from the movie that argues for something else, you know, that argues against that. So those are my agenda items, at least in my own mind. Where do you want us to start, Wes? So I think we should focus on the movie first. And if we need some of the papers, we could get at them. Let's list all the papers on the blog post corresponding to this episode. And if we bring up them as we go, why don't you give the citation, at least the author and the article title. But otherwise, we're not just going to list 10 of them right now. And I really obsessed over this film <laughs> did scene analyses and and I had the screenplay in front of me and even notice ways in which the screenplay actually differs from what actually happened in the film, improvisations by Jimmy Stewart and the rest. So the one thing that came across to me was, and then this is some of the, in some of the papers as well, is the repeated variations of the phrase, the power and the freedom. I don't know if you guys remember that. It's basically repeated at three major plot points in the film, including the first major plot point where Gavin Elster hires Scotty to investigate his wife, and he's engaged in this nostalgic reverie about early San Francisco and says, I would love to live there then, the color and excitement, the power, the freedom. So this whole theme, actually, it revolves around the exploitation of women by powerful men for the sake of preserving their independence and their freedom, it turns out. So the story of Carlotta, the one that Elster uses as part of his deception of Scotty is one of a woman abandoned by a rich and powerful men. And then Pop Liebel, when they're investigating this, Scotty and Midge, says men could do that in those days. They had the power and the freedom. And then, of course, Elster is getting rid of his wife. Scotty, in a way, has ditched Midge, right? They used to be engaged. And in the end, there's a sense in which he ditches Judy as she falls to her death. And in the climax of the film, he refers to Elster ditching Judy as well. He says, did he ditch you? And when she nods yes, he says, oh, Judy, when he had all her money and the freedom and the power. So basically, this is screenplay writers sort of rubbing the theme in your face and trying to make sure you know at least this bit of subtext. So I thought it was interesting, at least that as a starting point. You know, Mark's concern about interpretation, if you're looking at least for authorial intent or for something that just is glaring, I think that's it. I had two things. Question of, did Jimmy ditch Midge? I thought that Midge left him. She left him. Yes, he says, well, you called it off. And then we get that great shot of her 
with the sort of desperate slash furious look on her face, you know, sort of looking ever so slightly up from her drawing, you know, notice that she's usually like focused downward on her drawing while he's there. And then later on in the film, we see that she's jealous and so on and so forth. So in the backstory, she ditched him. But Dylan, were you asking like actually during the film? No, I was asking in the backstory. And I don't think those two things are necessarily in contradiction to one another. I mean, it could be that she ditched him, but she still loves him or loved him or cared about him. There's the whole question of what exactly her kind of love for Scotty is at all, you know, the way she would characterize herself. She uses motherly characteristics of herself with regard to him. She's very maternal and critics make a lot of it. And there's explicit stuff where Scotty says, don't be so motherly. And at one point she says, mother's here. That's a very prominently rubbed in your face as well. Her as a sort of foil to someone like Madeline. Yeah, and being particularly alluring in the kind of relationship. I guess there's probably something to say about her having left Scotty, but essentially because of Scotty, not because of her not wanting to be with him. I mean, there's basically nothing of this in the movie (laughs) except as subtext. Well, what leads into her, you know, this is after they talk about the bra, which we'll talk about at some point. And then he sort of, after that, he asks her how her love life is and goes and lies down on the couch and she says normal and blah 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 and he says we used to date once didn't we mm-hmm. which is a really odd way to put it and he has this sort of smug satisfied look on his face like yeah you were one of my conquests isn't he even more than that saying something like you're not dating anybody because i'm the man of your dreams no she says that she says well you know there's only one man for me johnny o and then he says well you called it off you know but of course He's one of those men, right? He made her call it off by doing what men do, which is, you know, becoming disinterested, but too afraid to actually break up and all that stuff. And then you get that look from her like, you asshole. (laughs) Now, did you guys watch the alternate ending? No. In which Midge and uh, (laughs) Scotty get together? Well, just that this is something I just ran across on YouTube and I see it's talked about on Wikipedia as well. It just adds an extra scene, a coda, where he is just at Midge's having a drink and they listen to the radio and they're saying that Elster is being extradited from Europe or whatever. And according to Wikipedia here, the tag ended had originally been demanded by the U.S. Production Code Administration who said it will be most important that the indication that Elster will be brought back for trial is sufficiently emphasized. And so Hitchcock succeeded in fencing off that requirement and had it dropped. They filmed it. I think the important thing here is that it does imply that in Hitchcock's mind, he didn't immediately throw himself out of the bell tower after Judy and Midge did not just disappear after that hospital scene from his life forever. I think it's a reasonable assumption if we're, you know, unless we want to say that's not canon, even though it was filmed because it's not in the official version. And so maybe he did throw himself. And that's part of the joy of the storytelling is that it stops at exactly that point and no further. Maybe he did what? throw himself immediately down off the tower. I think that's one of the the interpretations. I don't see how you could get that. I mean, to me, the ending of him standing there means that he is stuck there. Oh, I yeah. see. Okay. To me, it didn't... It well, he's imply. no longer afraid. That's sort of the glaring message of that. You know, he's out on the on the ledge and he's not... Yeah, he can look now. This episode is also sponsored by RX Bar. Now, RX Bar is a whole food protein bar made with 100% whole ingredients and no BS. That means no added sugar, no artificial colors, no artificial flavors, preservatives, or fillers. 
RX bars are made with 100% whole ingredients, just a few simple clean ingredients where everything serves a purpose. For example, egg whites are a main source of protein, and that's easy for your body to absorb. And RX bars have no gluten, no soy, and no dairy. RX bars come in many different delicious flavors. Whether you like sweet or savory, chocolate or fruit, there's an RX bar for you. Now, RX bars are ideal for snacking at the office, for breakfast, to throw in your bag and take on the plane, or maybe take on a hike uh, or a bike ride, or even as a pre- or post-workout snack. I got a box of 12 bars with a variety of different flavors in it. It had coconut, chocolate sea salt, blueberry, mixed berry, but most importantly for me, peanut butter, and I love peanut butter. So I pulled the bar out of the box, and one of the things that struck me first is that the ingredients are right there front and center on the label. So, for example, for the peanut butter chocolate bar here, three egg whites, 14 peanuts, two dates, no BS. And it actually tastes exactly like what you see on the label. You can taste the peanuts, you can taste the dates, and it pops like fresh food. So I've been using these as breakfast myself, uh, eating them before I go to the office, and it sustains me all the way through lunch. And in fact, I've been able to cut down on my, my cravings for lunchtime using these RX bars. So I'm a huge fan already. So I'm going to encourage you to get out there and try RX bars and as an incentive, you're going to get 25% off your first order at rxbar.com slash PEL if you use the promo code PEL. That's rxbar.com slash PEL, promo code PEL. Thanks again to RxBar for supporting the Partially Examined Life. Well, one of the interpretations that I had read was, oh, because as is pointed out in the Wood article that Wes referenced, at the very beginning, his vertigo is introduced by the fact that he's hanging off a ledge and a policeman falls off dies there and this is kind of what scars him for the film but he's hanging off the ledge in such a way that it's very hard to see how he would not just fall a second later and they don't show him being rescued there's no time you know the gutter is like breaking off so one of the interpretations is that <laughs> this has to be everyone's reaction right because i i had the same reaction before ever reading that wood article i'm like this is insane he could not just hang there like that i don't know did you guys have that as well or yeah i didn't that was the first thing I thought of. I kind of gave it to him. I mean, in that we just leave it up that he gets rescued. And the whole point of it is that he was traumatized, but it seemed like he's double traumatized, right? Because his vertigo isn't on set by the cop who tries to rescue him falling down. He is in a panic himself between life and death, hanging on that gutter and looking down. And we have that camera effect of the vertigo. So we know that he's having that experience hanging there. And then it seems like the trauma of having the cop who's trying to rescue him fall past him and seeing him dead on the ground sort of cements that. I wanted to ask about that case because it wasn't clear whether he simply has vertigo as a condition and becomes aware of it as a result of this traumatic incident, or if he somehow gets vertigo as a result. He says to Midge, what a way to find out I had it. So at least yes. at least he thinks that he had, he had always had it and just became aware of it at the wrong time. So rather than being like, yeah, the result of a trauma, it's sort of implicated as a cause in the trauma. That's consistent with the way it's filmed. But but it's got to get be getting much worse as, as a result of the trauma, right? And possibly, yeah, yeah. He would have noticed it if it was not. 
He can't, he can't go up on a stool and look out a window. So yeah, it definitely has to be worse than it was if that was the first time he discovered it. Right. Good point. So that seems to be a little bit to me, like a self lie regarding, you know, that he found out that he had vertigo as opposed to he was traumatized and he now has this thing to work through as a result of the trauma from what he experienced with that cop dying. I see all the, like this initial prologue is meant to be overtly implausible and to cue us into like the way um, Truffaut describes it in this will point you to these interviews as well. It's just that it's, and Scorsese, the same thing. It's like the plot's completely implausible. It's a line to hang things on sort of cinematic poetry on. And that, you know, part of that implausibility for me is like, what is his injury? So when we get past the prologue and we're in Midge's apartment five minutes in, he's got a cane and he's wearing a corset. What is his injury? And I mean, obviously he's got some kind of back sprain, but what caused that? <laughs> like, he didn't fall from the roof, obviously. Just hanging there for too long gave him a back sprain. I mean, that's absurd. Doesn't he leap across? He slips and falls onto the ter- onto the roof. There's terracotta roofs everywhere, apparently. And he then slides down. I agree with you. It maybe seems a little bit implausible, but the fact that he would have injured himself in that fall in a physical way, in addition to a psychological way, that's the way I interpret it. Well, the... From a screenplay writing perspective, the screenwriters just want him to be wearing a corset and talking about it with Midge and to have a cane that he's playing with. And Sure. And the plot is really secondary to that. But it doesn't matter because the game that they're playing is so rich. When I say it's implausible, none of it is um, offends you in the way it might offend you in some movies. None of it, you know, where it sort of breaks your suspension of disbelief and you can no longer enjoy the movie. Like when there's no sound in space, you know, how the guns in space are making noise. That just like ruins Star Wars for me. Exactly. (laughs) Yeah. So it doesn't, the thing is, it's like implausible, but it never, as far as I'm concerned, it never does that to you. It never decreases your enjoyment of the film or makes you go, oh my God, this is like, I can't. I didn't worry about it at all. It didn't bother me. Well, the reason I brought it up was just in terms of these interpretations that we read about. So Wood gives it an allegorical interpretation that because he's just hanging there, that he's really symbolically just hanging there for the entirety of the rest of the film. So that's an interesting way of putting it and, you know, just noting the underlying anxiety. Further than that, I don't remember. Well, he's just comparing it to a famous, what is it? It's an occurrence at Owl Creek Bridge by Ambrose Bierce where he's actually dying. That's what I was going to get was the next version, which I don't think would explicitly says, but one of the other things that we, I don't remember which one, maybe this is one of the things I saw on YouTube that in fact, there's no way that he could have pulled himself up. So in fact, he does fall and the entire movie is kind of his fever dream as he is about to die or, you know, either hanging there or already on the ground. And so that would be the reason why you would think that if he actually did jump you know, this could be an alternate, a stupid alternate ending after she jumps at the end of the film. If he just jumped after her and then they pull back and he's on the ground in that original highway, you know, in that original, just to make it really explicit. The fact that they didn't do that makes me think that that's not the interpretation you're supposed to take away from this. That kind of interpretation, it's really irrelevant, like these adjudications of matters of fact about the story. The the point is that something like that, it's not like, oh, yes, the if you go to the convention, like you go to a Star Trek convention, what really happened in scene such and such? Or what, what did you really mean by this? Oh, yes, he was falling in a mat. No, it's the interpretation is just the point of it is that 
it's suggestive in that way. You know, whether or not the screenwriters intended it, it's a worthwhile type of supposition to entertain, not because it needs to be literally true within the narrative, but because there is actually a thematic function to the implausibility of that prologue because it all shifts. The movie starts out being about this thing that happened to him and he's not going to go back to work and motherly Midge is trying to encourage him to go back to work. It's like nominally it's about a man who has lost his career because of this condition and can't go back to, but that gets discarded immediately and it becomes about a woman. It doesn't get discarded immediately because that symbol of him hanging over the precipice casts the shadow over the whole movie. Now, the idea of the principal problem of being the vertigo as just being this random hindrance to his career is the thing that's discarded. And then it becomes a metaphor for his relationship to a woman, maybe women in general. I just watched the first half of this with my 14-year-old daughter. We, we didn't get to the end of it or even to the reveal before I had to come and record this. But uh, yeah, so she interpreted it as it started to be about the vertigo in the first five minutes. And then it just stopped being about the vertigo. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. I had to tell her, no, the vertigo is going to come back. (laughs) And if you're a writer, it's the type of thing you should actually never do in a story. (laughs) He's he's the one writer who's allowed to get away with that. The whole, oh, it was just a dream. It was just a fantasy. Or was it? (laughs) It's just a fantasy. Whoa. Like all, every season of Dallas that you watched ending up being, uh, what's his face's dream in the shower. He wakes up, he's dead in the street, but he has her uh, brooch on. He's wearing the brooch. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Would we say that the plot point of Elster deciding, okay, here's a guy who could help me kill my wife because I can orchestrate this huge event to exploit his vertigo by leveraging his detective savvy to get him to get his claws into this problem and following Madeline around and then orchestrate the death of my wife and having her get thrown off this tower with Madeline as my accomplice. That seems also to be a similarly kind of thin plot point as the function of the particular facts regarding that he has vertigo in the opening scene. That that's just a a mechanism to get some of the action to move from one place to another, but itself is relatively inconsequential to the relationship between Scotty and Madeline and Judy. I mean, Elster's existence at all, except for maybe the point about the power and stuff, but you know, his recognition and choosing of Scotty just seems to be kind of amazing. Yeah. It's another implausible thing. Like, do you really think that's going to work? It's like setting up a Rube Goldberg machine to kill your wife. Like, (laughs) Yes. Instead of just doing it the old-fashioned way. So what I find interesting about this is that when you talk about film criticism, you know, just you and your friends talking about the film afterward, sort of the immediate thing you jump to is, yeah, that was a giant plot hole. Like, that was totally implausible. So, like, that is the fundamental form of film criticism, is this stuff that we're now saying that you shouldn't care about here. And for the most part, Hitchcock did care about that kind of stuff, and did comment himself on this film that he thought it was flawed for exactly the reason Dylan just explained. So I don't think we're justified in saying, oh, this is pure myth. We're focusing on the emotions involved and we don't care about the plausibility. Like that was not actually in the author's minds. It's just that it's such a good movie. 
we can forgive all this stuff. And clearly, whether that was their intention or not, that was the way it was executed. Like, okay, we're not going to over-explain some of this stuff. I also found, like, I understand that when Judy is acting like Madeline, I mean, she's a hell of a good actress, you know? <laughs> you know, the fact that she only kind of comes unstuck and starts talking in her own voice. Judy is. I mean, Kim Novak, yes. obviously, is amazing to do both those parts, but but then Judy has to be as well, yeah. Right. Judy, of course, does a good job when she's trying to be Madeline, but then when he discovers her as Judy for the first time, she also immediately tries to sell to the audience yep. and to sell to him that, like, I don't know who you are and you're, you're bothering me and I'm, and like, I'm going to kick you out. I'm going to call the police, whatever. And like, whereas you would expect she's being caught by surprise. We know, you know, as of five minutes later in the script, <laughs> we know that actually she feels very torn about this. But the fact that she's able to immediately go to that place, that strikes me seeing it as the second time as wildly implausible as pure audience manipulation. Of course it is. Yeah. And did you guys know on first viewing, did you suspect that Judy might be Madeline or was it just a complete surprise to you? No. And in fact, I was trying hard. I was expecting it. And when I, the, the camera goes in on her in front of the flower shop, I'm like, really? Is that Kim Novak? Yeah. Same thing with me. I was thinking, well, are they going to do this? But then no, that's a different actress. Yeah. And I was trying to see her when he's confronting her in the apartment and trying to you know get his way in there. But the way Mark just described it reminded me of, especially as the movie went along and you see Madeline's transformation into Judy, is wondering which one is the real person. So did Elster find Judy as we see Judy in the apartment that Scotty shows up to? And is she acting for Scotty then in a particularly over-accentuatedly anti-Madeline way, you know, later on, I'm thinking just before she puts the brooch on where she seems to have settled in, she's much more Madeline-like, but she feels like she's gotten Scotty and they've fallen back or in love and he is going to be with her until the spell is completely broken, you know, in confirmation of his suspicions. It seemed like she was not quite Judy and not quite Madeline at that point. Certainly more Madeline-like than Judy. It's just that wasn't the character of Madeline created as Carlotta. So, like, the fact that she wasn't acting all psycho and I'm being cold by death means she wasn't actually full-on Madeline. Because there was no other Madeline in that character that was created besides the psycho Madeline, the psycho I'm being possessed by a ghost Madeline. I see what you're saying. And the class implications are important here. We're meant to think of Judy as lower class and as a mistress that Gavin Elster was taking advantage of. And so that the seemingly perfect, refined, mysterious woman underneath that ruse is just someone vulgar, really. But she's also, besides this whole notion of being perfect, she's also contrasting sort of the three women, Midge and Madeline and Judy, Judy has a kind of attraction, but isn't the same kind of attraction that Madeline has, even in the film. I mean, certainly for Scotty, that's true, right? But it's also just the way in which she's portrayed. She's not nearly as sensual and alluring. To the extent that she is sensual, it's in kind of a crass way. Yeah. 
And I think Scotty's attraction is supposed to be merely a matter of her being reminiscent of Madeline. We're not supposed to think he'd just be normally attracted to someone like that, unless, you know, it's purely for sexual reasons. Seth, who do you think is hotter? I'm just trying to bring Seth in the conversation. Well, no, I, I think I was kind of with Dylan on this one. When the character of Judy comes in, I was immediately like, man, she looks a lot like Madeline. And it didn't take me long to figure out that that's what was happening. But the introduction of the character is what was strange to me because there's the boarding house, right? The connection between the two of them is that he followed the character of Madeline to this house where she rented a room but never showed up. Do you remember the scene where he follows her in and then she disappears? And so there was a moment there where I was like, wait a second, this is weird. And then immediately said, oh, okay, this must be the same woman acting as the wife and it's not really the wife. Speaking of which, uh, help me remember this because you know I was laying on the couch with a cat on my stomach while I was watching this. Other than the dream sequence where Jimmy Stewart, a.k.a. Johnny, a.k.a. Scotty, imagines what happened at the top of the tower, is there any other representation of the actual wife? No, there's no representation of the wife. In the flashback that Judy has. We see the wife fall to her death. Or being held by Gavin and pushed. You don't actually see the wife falling to her death. You see Jimmy Stewart figuring it out and imagining it. No, we see her splayed on the on the roof. She falls onto the roof and then... When she's writing her story, she's writing her letter. But from whose perspective do you see it? When it happens, it's from his perspective. He sees her falling out the window and then sees her at the bottom. But then when Judy has the flashback, then they actually show her being held by Gavin in the throne. Is that Judy having the flashback or is that... Yes. Because he's not there. This is like just when it gets revealed to the audience. Yeah. When she's writing that note that she's in principle going to leave for him and she tears it up, that's the whole reveal of the secret. That's the reveal? Yeah. Okay. And that actually was the big difference between this and the book that Hitchcock said. It's more effective, he thought, to have it revealed right away. So then the audience is anticipating like, ooh, well, what happens when Jimmy Stewart's character finds out rather than okay, so he's making her into this thing. And then we find at the very end that they really are the same person. And then in the book, he actually murders her because he's so pissed off. I mean, I would argue that that's the most important and brilliant uh, plot point. By making that reveal then, it solidifies the movie being about Scotty and the relationship that he has with these women and his own psychological condition and stuff like that. It makes it much, much less about any of the mechanics of the movie. It's not a twist. So in M. Night Shyamalan movies, they should reveal the twist halfway through instead of waiting to the end. <laughs> if you think that the M. Night Shyamalan movies will support such an act. <laughs> What's going to happen when Bruce Willis figures out he's a ghost? You'll be wondering that. Yeah, they should have the reveal halfway through the M. Night Shyamalan movie and then have a 20-minute psychedelic Salvador Dali-inspired dream sequence that's what's really needed it just makes me think about the issue of spoilers so in general i don't like to care about spoilers because for a good movie or a good story it doesn't matter if you know what the end is right everybody's seen and knows what the plot is for shakespeare for any other number of other stories 
You can see it many, many, many times, and it doesn't matter that you know the whole story. Well, that's because that's poetry, yeah. But that's not the convention of suspense. <laughs> right. Shakespeare's not plot-based. It's um, Well, although with 90% of suspense, it is formulaic enough that you know they're really going to be okay. Exactly. Like you know the heroes are going to be fine. And that's why like something like Game of Thrones is so kind of awesome is because it restores that suspense because they establish right at the end of season one, no, maybe your favorite character will not live. So now it's anything goes and it makes it actually exciting in that way again, even though you could argue that you, know, you shouldn't have to rely on surprise. That's cheap. You should rely on artistry or something. But isn't that suspense just going against the form? Well, no, because if it's, it's once you've established that anything can go, you know, so after season one of Game of Thrones, then you could have actual suspense is what I'm saying. Using the normal techniques you would, like, oh, is he going to kill him or not? I don't know. Will they save him in time? Like, those are just normal suspense setting up techniques. But the fact that you've established that it's not preordained is what actually makes it suspenseful. Mm. Or I don't know. Do you think it seems plenty of suspense is still very effective as suspense, even though you're pretty damn sure that they're going to be fine. Like, exactly. You don't actually have to be unknown. It's just, it's a different kind of experience of the play suspense versus, and the suspense could just be like, how are they going to get out of this? You know, Batman is going to get out of the, the trouble he's in, but how? So that's certainly a different kind of suspense. Maybe not nail biting. I bet my nails a lot. I'm in suspense so, did, about whether you guys are going <laughs> to talk about the psychology of the movie. Well, I thought we were talking about the psychology of the movie. You know what he means. <laughs> we're talking about Game of Thrones and whether spoilers are... Well, we're talking about the psychology of audience expectations. That is part of the psychology of the movie, but it's not the psychology of the characters in the movie, which I know is what you, <laughs> where we need to get eventually. Yeah. Just one more thing on this whole, you know, noticing that it is Kim Novak playing the second character because of cinematic conventions doesn't actually decide one way or the other whether she's actually the same person in movie plot, because it's a perfectly normal movie convention, you know, rare, but not unheard of that an actor can play multiple parts, you know? And of course that would play into it. Like, wow, it's amazing that she looks just like Madeline and he's going to make her into Madeline. But maybe that would have been all there is, is like, he's, you know, that could be a different story. It's not that there was deception in the first half, but that, He's uh, using this person. It would still have all the psychological oomph as he's trying to remake this person into his lady love, but don't have them being turned out to be the same people. Just, you know, make it more of a, a straightforward examination of how fucked up this character is to want to do this to this woman, to turn her into this thing. I was trying to think about when he really suspects that he has been duped and she actually is the same person as Madeline when that happens exactly. Because the whole business with him dressing her up... It happens when he sees the necklace. You think it's only when he sees the necklace, or do you think he's suspicious before then? When does the dream of the bouquet happen? The dream is after the inquest, before he meets Judy. The dream is what drives him into his catatonia. Hmm. Which I couldn't remember that. It doesn't make that much sense. I remember the catatonia, but I had to watch it again. Like, isn't it seeing her fall that drives him into the catatonia? But wait, there's that whole inquest scene. So he has it together more or less, for a while there at least, why, you know, he would wait to freak out like that. But, you know, it made it clear what it was said that he said at the inquest, even though they didn't show him saying this, that he actually did, like, black out at that point and only remembered the next thing he knew, he was back in his own apartment. So they show him slinking out at the bottom of the tower. 
but you know that whole thing is not explained and so the relationship between that temporary it's not catatonia if you're walking around what is it <laughs> somnambulance a blackout versus you know what happens later or it doesn't really make clear like was his whole time in the institution was that a blackout like when i was watching it with my daughter like when he's suddenly wandering around the streets after being in the institution she's like wasn't he in an institution just like the, the end of the rooftop at the beginning they don't you know need to show this and just the fact that it's supposed to be like a year later I don't know where I read that. I read that somewhere, but uh, is there anything in the, the movie that actually indicates like a year has passed other than the doctor saying, well, I think it's going to take six months or a year to get him out of this. Yes, there is later on in the is movie, it? It, but it's later on something about this is the first time in a year, Judy, that I've been happy, something like that. He implies when he's talking to Judy that it's been a year. Well, and that says to me that his entire time in the institution wasn't a giant blackout for him either. Because otherwise, he'd be like, this is the first time in what seems to me like three weeks that I've been happy. But we also don't know how long he was wandering around after getting out of the institution, wandering around the city like Carlotta, looking for his lost love. Although he wasn't actually insanely asking people on the street, have you seen my lost love? So it's not exactly the same. Have you seen my lost love? No, that's that's a terrible Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> And that's the end of part one. Normally, you could just wait until next week to hear the rest of the discussion, but we're trying something different this time. As always, Partially Examined Life Citizens get the full unbroken discussion in a single ad-free file, which you can download by logging into our website or install the Citizen Feed on your mobile device. This gives you all of the the behind-the-firewall content, including those early episodes that you have not heard. But we also recognize that a lot of you are using Patreon.com, so we've enhanced our Patreon.com slash Partially Examined Life page, such that even if you sign up at the $1 per month level, you will get the Citizen version of this episode, as well as some other episodes you haven't heard. Now, if you haven't tried Patreon, you have a single account, and you can set up support levels, which can be very, very low, for various things around the web that you want to see more of. Podcasts, musicians, art projects. I support, for instance, existential comics. So any new episodes like this that we put up in the future will also be available from that site. Now, why are we doing this? We did a survey on our Facebook group recently, asked people about whether they were partially examined life citizens, why or why not they might be. And two pieces of feedback that we got were, A, I use Patreon, you should do more stuff there, so we're doing that. And B... Well, I like you. I listen to you guys all the time. But I've already heard the old episodes that you put behind the firewall, and you really haven't given me any reason to join up. So here's the reason. We're trying this. It will very likely not be the last time we do this. I can assure you that most of our content will remain free for everyone. We feel so blessed to be able to be heard by this many people. We're educational for entertainment purposes, and we do not want anything to stand in the way of that. But if you are one of our listeners who is interested enough in what we have to say to want to hear the second half of this discussion, then of course we would love some reciprocation from you for the many hours of work that we put into these things. You will be helping to make sure that we can do more of these podcasts, we can launch new projects, that we can produce extra content on texts that we don't have time to cover on the regular podcast, more live shows, help pay the people that edit our episodes, do our art, host our files. So you can find links to sign up for Citizen or our Patreon page at partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. And really, thank you sincerely for listening. Now, good night to you.